Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, we review it, we talk about it, and we discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up. And as always, we'll end with our recommendations of further reading inspired by the film of the week. But before we kick off, uh, a quick catch-up on what else you've been watching. So Sam, what else in your in your bed-bound state have you been watching? Well, I've been watching a lot of the most recent Netflix Marvel series, uh, Luke Cage, which is brilliant, and I could talk lots about it, and I won't really because it's not a film and we don't talk about that here but suffice to say it is absolutely excellent and people who complain that it's racist because it has no white characters which I've seen complaints of in the media are utterly ridiculous and need to have a long hard think about representation in the media in terms of films I've seen in the past seven days The Hunger Games I finally caught up on the last Mockingjay film, Mm -hmm. the fourth or third part two in the franchise. And I remember wanting to see this and watching part three in preparation and then thinking, well, that was really boring. I won't bother seeing part four. So I've eventually seen part four. It's a film of two halves. It's really, I was, I really enjoyed the first half of it. It was a really solid action film and Jennifer Lawrence is amazing, but the acting performances by everyone are, are really very good. The dialogue is snappy and then it kind of fell apart towards the end and it has the most predictable scene in film history. Towards the end and having predict I'm not very good at predicting things that happen in films and even I could see what was coming in that and it was just a bit plodding and annoyingly predictable towards the end so I didn't enjoy the second half really the first half was brilliant have you read the books no okay um I I, I did read the books well before the film came out uh, of, of those and I will say that the third book was the weakest of the three books. Okay. And thus I was amazed they made it into two films. Right. But yes, I, I would concur with you in terms of uh, that film. I really enjoyed the action, action sequences, although they were different. They reminded me of why I enjoyed the first film so much. That part of the film was really solid. But then beyond that, and as you say, it might be something from the source text, but I really didn't get on board with it. How about you? Uh, the answer remains nothing. Right. Having a now five-week-old baby uh, really cut down the chances and time spent watching a film. So I've watched The Matrix Revolutions. Um, <laughs> um, but also I have watched uh, one film. I have watched Hologram for a King, mm. which is a Tom Hanks film about a American businessman in, I think it's in um, Saudi Arabia. Basically a fish-out-of-water story. A middle-aged man realising where his life's gone wrong, all that kind of thing. Finding love, finding joy. It's nothing amazing, but it was a fun diversion. Mid-feed, mid-screaming, mid-changing. It's alright. In continuing our, our trend of watching films that are a bit alright, it's a bit alright. It's Tom Hanks. He tends to give a good film. It's got some excellent performances from some side characters, but it's clearly trying to say something about various things, and it doesn't quite earn the... Uh, the message trying to put across. Oh. Um, I have two other things to mention. Firstly, 
there is an amazing website list list of cartoons um, that I will put up in the show notes called Awesome Inventions and someone has removed a letter from the title of several well-known films and then thought about what the film would be and drawn the results and they are incredible and it, it has things like Princess and the Fro <laughs> the other thing I want to mention which um, sort of moves into the film we're going to talk about this week is an incredible video about Jackie Chan directing action comedy and not only is this great watching from a pop culture point of view but it's really interesting to see that there's a fundamental difference between the way that he and other Hong Kong directors direct action and comedy together in a way that is getting lost in recent years. So I spent, having seen this video, I spent a lot of time in Matrix Revolutions thinking about the way that action scenes were shot. So I would heartily recommend that. I know the video well. I can't remember who came in. Um, every, every Frame of Painting, is that channel that does it? Yes. But I know the, the, the video very well. Brilliant video. So Sam, what are we watching this week? This week is the last in the Wachowskis trilogy, The Matrix Revolutions. Although it was filmed back-to-back in 2003 with the second film, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions is the last in the Wachowskis Matrix trilogy. Neo's quest for the truth continues as we pick up where the second film left off, but his digital self is trapped in a subway station transition zone between the Matrix and the real world. Morpheus, Trinity, Merovingian, many other characters return. As before, this is a blanket spoiler warning. I think that's as much as I want to say without going into the nitty-gritty of the film. So listen any further than this and you'll know much more than just this setup. Exactly. Rob, what were your thoughts? Now, having given Matrix Reloaded a bit of short shrift last week in the way it handled the wider Matrix world and squandered some of the goodwill of the first film, I very much do enjoy the third film. I think that rightly or wrongly they've managed to get a lot of setup out of the way in the second film which is why it can be a bit of messy a bit of a dull film but it does mean that we go into this last film not needing any setup in terms of who all the actors are who all the players are what all the the people are trying to achieve so we end up with this last film that is just kind of not action in terms of fight scenes but action in terms of throughput of thought indeed Everyone is doing something. There's very little sitting and talking in this film. I think it still suffers a bit from going a bit too wide. So we have too, a little too much going on. And I think that the forsaking of practical effects from the first film into visual effects in the second and third films still shows up, particularly towards the final fight between Agent Smith and Neo. The CGI can't quite compare to actually a physical fight in terms of uh, its sort of realism and sort of sucking you into the, the film. I think the film kind of gives up on trying to be intellectual in many ways. It kind of forsakes its ideas of choice and freedom and that kind of thing, but is replaced with a good action film with some good beats in it. I do think it's still a step down from that first film. I think the first film still remains a perfect existing film by itself, and this film doesn't quite reach those heady heights. 
but I did enjoy it more than the second one. Sam? Right, we can end the episode here because I completely agree with absolutely everything you just said. Fair enough. So, well done, Rob. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Gold star to me. Yes. I went into this and not having seen it for some time, if at all, all the way through, actually, I might have seen snatches of it. And I was looking forward to it with some trepidation, having seen how much worse than the first film the second film was. I thought the third film was going to be yet another Wachowski ego trip. And being shot back to back with the second film didn't make me view this any more favourably. But I really enjoyed this film. Like you, I didn't think this was quite as good as the first one, but I thought this was head and shoulders above the second one. Mm -hmm. Just taking Keanu Reeves for a start, hes I was struck right at the beginning of this by how he... This character, this performance is excellent. He's crafted an amazing character here. He gets a lot of stick, including from me. Many things about Keanu Reeves' career are lamentable, including the film that you had to go and review last year. That was a bad film. We didn't talk about that film. Okay, right. But he is perfect for this. He is just amazing. And... When looking back at the casting of this, Will Smith was originally going to be cast in this role and it wouldn't have been the same. I mean, Will Smith, I really rate as an actor, really enjoy all of his performances. He would have projected a personality onto the role of Neo that kind of wouldn't really have... that wouldn't have rung true in the same way that Neo does in this film. Yeah. And... It sounds like damning with faint praise, but it's really not. If I say that Keanu Reeves is incredibly vanilla and bland in this role, and it's a skill, and it's really good. So that that was my my first thought about this film. Okay. I think there's... I mean, the, the, the thing that I'm going to probably talk more on later is the idea of this wider story that we we don't get from the film. So... Unlike many other films we talk about, these films don't exist within these three films. There is The Animatrix, which is a series of cartoon sort of animated short films to go along with it. There is some comics, there are some books, and there was an online game um, called The Matrix Online mm. that all fleshed out the world as a Matrix, the, the, the larger canon of this film. And so it's very hard sometimes to talk about this film because you are only getting a snapshot of it. And one of the things that occurred to me there, just right now, is one of the ideas in the film is, like, you don't really know what Neo is. Mm. It came out that he's, he's created it to balance the equation. So is he is he a human who becomes the one, or is he made by the machines to be the one? Is he a programmer, I suppose, is the question. And it did strike me just then as mentioning that if I was a machine building a human you wouldn't go far off the Keanu Reeves vanilla blandness, if you see what I'm saying. Mm. If you've got a, sort of like the architect who is renowned in the film, at least renowned for being, he can't see choice, he can't see that kind of stuff. But you've got this, he creates a human, in inverted commas, a one, um, and that one is a bit kind of blank, shall we say. Mm. Just a, a, a side observation there. Yes, yeah. And not... Something I was thinking about in terms of a theme for this film is the idea of exile that's brought up by the little girl, Sassy, right at the beginning of the film. 
and it speaks to this idea of Neo being a bit bland, I suppose, mm. is that he says something and she says, I had to leave my home too. So she has already understood, a seven, eight-year-old girl has already understood more about Neo's situation than he has. And that seems to be a process that we go through throughout the film, is that he mentions this idea of not being at home and she's immediately got thoughts about the geographic versus metaphysical mm. interpretations of this idea of exile. So Neo becomes a cipher for everyone. It's not just for this this young girl, this character at the, at the beginning. So I mean cipher, he becomes a, a sort of vehicle for anyone watching the film to be able to project something onto it yeah so in that way this this idea of being of being bland and vanilla is is very useful but at the same time you've got the, the talking of that you've got this almost contrast and balance by smith Agent smith who they do in some say is you know he's the negative of you hmm. and right at the end you have the matrix or at least the city that we're in the matrix has become entirely uniform and you've always got more personality coming from smith especially when he takes the make the oracle the laughter and sort of the smiles. There's a far more personality coming out of Smith, ostensibly a program who has become incredibly uniform, than you're getting out of Neo, presumably a human, you know, alive in the Matrix. Hmm. I, I was thinking towards the end in that final fight scene, I was, I was feeling sorry for Smith. And I didn't side with Neo anymore. I just, I felt Hugo Weaving's pain. Which is bizarre because, as you say, he's a program and and Neo is the one. Mm. The way that it's presented, but it just Agent Smith is presented as the sympathetic character in a weird way. Yeah, you, you, you do. I mean, you understand where he's coming from. I wouldn't say it was sympathy, but I, was, I, I would put it as understanding his point of view. Right. It is a sort of a nihilistic point of view, certainly. But I do. I can see how you can understand the rationale of it. Even if I don't have sympathy for him myself. Okay, so it's it's more sort of empathy than sympathy, but still the idea is you, you kind of understand him, which is weird because he is the very definition of a program, a computer, an automaton, in many respects. Exactly, I think. But this, to me, this is we've touched on this previously in other episodes about choice, and. I feel that the whole film, the whole trilogy of the films, boils down to the idea of choice. And if you listen to Agent Smith's last like monologue in in the pit in the fight, he says, "You know, why are you doing this? Love, honor. You know, he lists off all these traditional ideas of why people do things, and he explains how they're all kind of bunk. And the the talk earlier about how machines can experience love, and Kamala and Sati's dad. What's his name? Go for me now." Uh, Ramakandra. Ramakandra explains how he loves his daughter, and it's just a word. You know, he, he he says it's just a word expressing what we feel, and the idea that through all the miasma of this film and all the different things that people possess, all it comes down to is choice. Yeah. Everything boils down to choice, and that is what ostensibly makes an AI an AI. So, what makes something a living artificial intelligence versus being a program? His choice. A computer program in this day and age looking at now can't choose. I can tell it to do things, it can react to them, you can throw some randomness in there, but it can't choose something. Yeah. And the leap to a machine being able to make choices 
is one of the big leaps towards AI. Mm. And all right at the end, after the big speech from Smith, Neo turns around and says, I'm doing this because I choose to. Yeah. And that is the thing that separates him from Smith. Smith, even through his freedom of having been destroyed and reborn, still is just living out his programming. He just lives out his programming. Whereas the step above that is the choice. Mm. And you, you will know much more about this than I do from working in IT, but people will complain and say, well, computer's not doing what I want it to. And the technology's gone mad and I don't understand what's going on. And the response to that is, well, the computer's doing exactly what you tell it to. It's functioning fine. Yeah. So you may not know everything you're telling it to do. Like There are things mm. you don't know you're telling it, but it's not doing things without you. No, no. And that's something that we have... There's sort of a... There's a scene with the Oracle um, earlier on which speaks this idea of choice that Neo says, says, I persist because I choose to, as you say. Um, And he doesn't really understand what he's doing. It's only by the end of the film he realises that he's, he's chosen to. And he asks the Oracle why this is happening and culminates in her just pointed to a sign behind his head. And the sign behind his head is Temet Nosso, which is the Latinized version of a Greekified version of an Egyptian proverb. It's just it just means know thyself. Mm. And he understands from this that the Oracle is saying you choose, you're in charge, you have to understand yourself, but you're going to choose what's going on. And that's something that I really liked about this film and these films in general is the idea that they don't really understand what's going on. No one really knows. I mean, this Latin motto that's taken from Greek, that's taken from Egyptian is is a brilliant example of that because it's kind of this religious or philosophical mishmash. No one really knows. Mm. And all it boils down to is near at the end, as you said, saying... Well, actually, I only carry on because I choose to. That is the one line that this whole franchise boils down to. I think you. I mean, from a Neo's point of view, certainly he, at this point, knows he's been created, or or at least infused with power for someone else's gain. Like mm. he exists to balance the matrix for the architect and for the machines, and his trip to the Machine City still isn't his choice he was set on that path by the oracle and it isn't until you remove everything from him that is going to that could keep him going he's lost trinity he's not going back to humanity he's lost everything that traditionally would keep a man going mm. you know he isn't doing it for revenge for trinity because um, that isn't how well he isn't doing it for revenge for anybody he's just doing it because he chooses to that's the choice that aside from the programming of him and his life, he's making that choice. You know what? He, he could quite easily, at this point, everything. Like he just not. You know, it, it, it would be in his power to not do it. But he makes the choice to make peace. Yeah. The other thing, as I say, I think that I really liked about this film is that having gone through all the introductions last time, I now felt able to sort of speculate about the nature of things in the, in the, in the Matrix. So you've got Seraph, um, who is referred to as wingless, by uh, the guards at Club Hell. You've got the Merovingian himself. And the idea of who are these people, what do they do, 
the talk of exiles, of, of a lot of programs exiling themselves in the Matrix because they aren't, brackets, useful um, in the way that Ramakandra and his wife are. And I like this kind of post-fan theory way of looking at this film in that it doesn't give you all the answers. We don't quite know what the Merovingian is or does. Mm. Uh, there is talk, obviously, of other Matrixes. Um, and there is, if you look at the, the wider canon I was talking about earlier, there is the idea that the Merovingian was a operating system of an earlier Matrix. That's why he doesn't believe in choice, because choice being the defining characteristics of this Matrix, the modern Matrix, the Sig Matrix. The one he ran earlier in the history of, of the Matrixes didn't have the Oracle producing choice. So he doesn't believe in choice. And they talk earlier about angels and devils and werewolves and ghosts. And we see some of those in the last film. And now we see some of those being able to sort of fly, shall we say, in, in the fight scene in the entrance to Club Hell. The guards there suddenly have the ability to leap to the ceiling and fly around. And that's where we get into the world of, well, are those the, in brackets, demons or angels from the earlier version of Matrix in the same way the ghosts and the werewolves were from the last one? And I like that. I suppose that sprinkling of backstory that we aren't seeing, the feeling that there's a wider world going on. Mm. I don't want to remember, every, some films you want to just kind of just tie off a neat bow and move on. But I like the fact that this film kind of leaves us with things unknown. What were these early matrices? What happened to the others, the ones? That kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. This is, I mean, you mentioned briefly uh, the idea of fan theories, and we talked about this some last week, but this film, more than many, many others, is one that is open to interpretation, mm. open to different fan theories about it. And it's, I think it's that that gives this franchise such longevity that anyone can make what they want of this film because there is so much to it. And it's credit to the Wachassis that they've done so much beyond just the film itself. Mm. And I suppose it kind of a little... And another little add-on to that is is Smith. Right at the end of the film, he he says, when when he kind of gets deja vu about the scene with Neo, and he says, "Oh, I've seen this before." This kind of it felt a little bit like you were kind of on the edge of something meta textual there, something beyond the film. We talked about the idea of meta before, but it was kind of looking beyond the film and saying, "Well, actually." I, I can look back on the way that something was before. So something, even in that, you've got the idea of the Wachowski saying, well, actually there was another version that Smith is talking about and that we're thinking about and that you can speculate about, mm -hmm. but ultimately you're not really going to know everything about. Exactly. So Sam, having completed the trilogy, what is your follow-up reading? What is your further reading, your homework for our listeners? Right. The one is fairly obvious, and it's one that I suspect many of us will have seen before. But I would recommend going back to the first Captain America film, Captain America the First Avenger, which is an excellent performance by Hugo Weaving, who is Agent Smith here, um, as Red Skull, as the primary antagonist in Captain America film. It's well worth watching if you somehow have not seen the first Captain America film. Mm -hmm. And my second one is very tenuous, but I was thinking towards the end, and it, certain parts of it get very mythical towards the end, 
particularly the blind of the neo which i hadn't talked about see rob to talk about pyrethius and ccc greek mythology but the film that made me think of when the blind neo and trinity were flying above the clouds is stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey there is that moment where they rise into light and there is a horn soundtrack playing and there's something weightless about the the way that the spacecraft rises above the clouds that really made me think of certain moments in 2001 so i would put that forward as it's well worth watching if you haven't seen it it's something it's a film that i fail to understand on a regular basis but if you haven't seen it then then go back and watch that Fair enough. I must. I must say, I I have seen two thousand one many times, and I just don't like it. But that's one for another time. My choices. I've kind of. I've been a bit cheeky, really. Basically, I've I've sought out films that the actors I like were in, uh, films I like rather than any kind of thematic link to this first film. So it's just like you were in the Matrix. I like you. You're watching this other thing I really like. I really like, and people don't see enough of. Okay. So the first one I'm going to recommend. It was from 1985, so three years after I was born, and it has Bruce Spence, who plays the train man in The Matrix. He appears as Jebediah the pilot in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Now, I don't want to reopen the debate between me and Sam about Mad Max. Beyond Thunderdome was the third in the series before Fury Road. It is as 80s end of the world as it gets, with big hair and leather and men fighting with chainsaws in a cave it is gloriously 80s it is very mad max it's violent it is brilliant it often gets short strift because of the uh, shall we say the the staging and the costumes are very at this point you look back on them with a wry smile but there's a lot going on here especially the stuff with bruce spence as a helicopter pilot so uh, if you haven't seen it it's well checking out you haven't got to see any other mad max all mad max films exist by themselves, so you haven't got to see anything else, but check that one out. Secondly, I went for not an actor, but an editor. The editor of The Major Revolutions was Jack Steinberg, who is a prolific American editor, done a lot of work with Chikowskis, so he did Bound, I recommended the other week, he's done Speed Racer, and all that kind of thing. The film that I want to recommend from him is from 2008, and it is City of Ember. City of Ember, I suppose is a, a kid's fantasy film about a city that lives underground um, and was put there no one really knows how long ago to protect people many years have passed and the power is starting to die on them and it is the story of these two kids who go exploring shall we say um, to, and find their way out or trying to find sort of what's going on it's very kids adventure but it is it is beautiful. It's got Bill Murray in it. It's got Tim Robbins in it. It's got uh, various Mackenzie Crooks in it. Toby Jones in it. It kind of came out with a bit of a fanfare and then was forgotten quite quickly. Um, but if you haven't seen it, especially if you've got kids, it's one I'd recommend. City of Ember, 2008. Great. Right then. Rob, what are we moving on to next week? Well, we're now in October, the month of spookiness and, and horror. So I thought it fitting that we looked at something a bit more a bit more horrific for October. So we are going to be looking at the Evil Dead series. Now Sam, have you seen any of them? No, I haven't seen any of them. And to be honest, I've forgotten that we decided this. So this now is again news to me. 
No, I haven't seen any of them. Excellent. As you'll know from all those who heard the, the Babadook last year, um, horror is not my area, and I have very little familiarity with it. So, um, then this should be fun for everyone involved. <laughs> you can find us both online at Prestige Podcast. Find just me at Life underscore Academic, and you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.